and welcome to Convos on the Couch by Life Science Health. I'm Nikki Lanza, and I'm so excited to talk with Karen Byerly Lamb today from our Cincinnati office. She's going to help us understand a bit more about self-injury. So welcome, Karen. Hi, glad to be here. Why don't we start? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm a psychologist um, in our Clifton office in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I have been at Life Stance, I guess, for about four years, and I also teach um, abnormal psychology at Xavier University as an adjunct. Oh, great. Very, very great. And tell us a little bit about your experience working with individuals who might self-injure. Well, prior to getting my doctorate, I had a master's in counseling, and I worked for quite a few years with children and adolescents um, in both outpatient, nonprofit work, um, intensive outpatient. So I have a lot of experience in working with teens um, who self-injure as well as um, currently I work with a lot of college students um, and we see that a lot in that population as well. And that's actually a really great segue into sharing a little bit of statistics about people who self-injure because according to healthyplace.com and .com, 90% of people who engage in self-harm begin during teen and pre-adolescent years. So you definitely sound like you have some experience working with that population. And, and many of those who self-injure report learning how to do so from friends or um, pro-self-injury websites as well. So definitely sounds like you carry a lot of experience when we're to talk about this topic. So let's jump in. Can, you, can we start by you sharing with us a little bit about what is self-injury? Well, we also use the term non-suicidal self-injury. So NSSI um, is something that we call it as well. Um, it's intentionally hurting oneself. So it could be anything from carving, cutting, or scratching your skin, piercing your skin, burning yourself, hitting, punching oneself. Any behavior falls into this category that's not that's aimed at causing pain to our person, but is not with the intent of ending our life. Okay, so I think that's a key distinguishing factor there that I think commonly people might think, well, if someone's self-injuring, they're looking to kill themselves. And you're saying that's not necessarily the case of, of why people might do it. So can we can you go a little bit into further detail about why people might self-injure or self-harm? Well, yeah, there's many reasons. Um, it differs from person to person. There's obviously some overlaps that and trends that you tend to see. Um, person, I guess the basis that I would want to start with is that a person who engages in this type of behavior is experiencing intense emotional pain. This person is sometimes looking for a pain release. Mm -hmm. um, they might be looking to process or distract themselves from negative feelings that they're experiencing. They could be looking to feel something physically. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I make that you know point physically because often a person will describe feeling numb. Um, they might be dissociated from their body. So by doing this, it kind of brings them physically into their body. Um, they might be looking to punish themselves for perceived failures or things they feel like they've done wrong. Um, it's sometimes an expression of emotion somebody doesn't know how to access. So I hear a lot like I feel really overwhelmed and I feel like everything's going crazy in my head and that's when it happens. Um, and also a feeling a sense of control when everything feels out of control. So it sounds like there's many different reasons why people would, would do this then for sure. 
And yeah. Especially to see it happening so young during those years of adolescence, even pre-adolescence, when there's just a lot going on then. So, you know, it, it seems to, if you're someone who's struggling with just coping with like the difficult emotions and just navigating difficult things of like pre-adolescence or adolescence, this is another way to maybe cope with some of those, that, that emotional pain. I, I guess we need to simplify not just like navigating through adolescence, but these are individuals that are really struggling with that deep emotional pain. I, I guess what, what could be some of the other causes of some of that emotional pain? Well, I mean, often you can see, so non-suicidal self-injury is not something that's part of a diagnosis. Or I mean, I want to say it's not its own diagnosis. It's part of other diagnoses often. Okay. So sometimes, you know, we're going to see people um, often who have a lot of trauma history. So people who have, you know, childhood, physical, sexual, emotional abuse, sexual assault, mm -hmm. um, those who have been bullied or rejected, um, people who have, you know, just had some significant traumas and they don't know how to process those traumas. Our brains aren't wired to process trauma you know, like really, truly, right. um, and individuals who have high levels of depression, anxiety, intrusive thought patterns. I see that sometimes. And what I mean by intrusive thought patterns is people who have sort of that obsessive compulsive kind of, um, thought pattern, because sometimes it's the obsessive thoughts that lead to a compulsive behavior to get rid of the thoughts. Ah, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Can you tell us more about the demo, specific demographics of people who might do more self-harm than others? Yeah, I, I should mention that rates are likely higher than reported um, than, you know, only because we get a lot of shame and a lot of fear of hospitalization. That's what I hear most when people disclose. You know, they're often looking down at the floor. They don't make eye contact with me when I ask about it. Um, sometimes they don't even disclose it until I've known them for quite a while. Um, because there is that misnomer of if I self-harm, it means I want to kill myself. Yeah. So that means I'm going to be put in the hospital immediately. And most people don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. um, adolescents have the highest rates of self-harm. Um, like you mentioned before, um, it's a time of great strife. You know, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of feelings happening. You know, you have puberty, all of the things that kind of make this perfect storm of difficulty expressing emotions. Um, College-age youth, um, who I work with currently, that's probably our next um, demographic, because college-age kids are really just, and I say college-age because they don't have to necessarily be in college, but that 18 to 25, yeah. um, those are just, that's kind of delayed adolescence. You know, they're not yeah. really truly fully adults, True. but they're still kind of figuring out who they are. Um, women are more likely to self-harm, possibly, than men. I would say we see it more with women because I think women disclose more. Men are less likely to disclose. And then LGBT youth are at higher risk, you know, for obvious reasons, just with struggling with the emotions of coming out and all of the things associated with that sometimes. Um, and then individuals who have high emotional reactivity. So somebody who just, they feel a feeling, it's super intense. They're very reactive with that emotion. Okay. Um, those who struggle with identifying emotions, maybe they don't know what the name is for what they're feeling, um, or they struggle with expressing an emotion. And then low self-esteem, obviously, is another factor. Got you. So one of the biggest reasons where 
doing this episode is to really spotlight and bring awareness to self-injury. So why do you feel it's important for us to spotlight and become more aware of self-injury? Well, the number one reason in my mind is to reduce the shame. You know, I think life sciences goal, as well as most clinicians I work with is to reduce shame and reduce stigma so that people seek services and they get the help that they need. Um, you know, if somebody's engaging in these type of behaviors, they are an in intense emotional pain and we want them to come in. We want them to get the help that they need. And if they're too ashamed to do it, you know, or they think that they're the only one, they're not going to reach out. And so if we kind of take the, you know, blanket back and kind of shed a light on it, sometimes people can feel more comfortable to come forward. So that's number one. Um, I would say also in my experience, I've seen some medical and mental health providers, and I know it sounds shocking, but you know, if you are a mental health provider and it's not your specialty, or you haven't worked with a lot of teens or college age youth, you're not going to necessarily have the experience. And sometimes inadvertently, um, those individuals can cause, um, a client to get quiet or maybe not share because they feel like if they do, they're going to be too much for their therapist. Because I think sometimes when clinicians or mental health providers or even, you know, medical doctors don't know about something, there's a little bit of fear, like, oh, I don't want to say the wrong thing, or I don't know how to work with this person. So I should find them someone who does. And sometimes, you know, the clients have told me when somebody does that, I feel like I'm too much. Like I shouldn't have told them because now I've lost my treatment provider and I have to go find someone else. I think, so that, I think if we provide that education, obviously. Yeah, no, I yeah. think that's so important. And just reflecting how it's also very important for therapists to really make themselves aware and knowledgeable about this topic too. So they aren't inadvertently maybe uh, scaring off their own clients. If the client's fear is that, oh my gosh, I'm going to feel like I'm too much for the therapist or for my medical doctor or whatever. So I think that's actually a really key mm-hmm. point. Can you share some tips of how to help someone navigate and feel their urges to self-harm? Okay. So first find a provider who's well-versed, obviously, in working with someone who struggles with this type of behavior. Um, it's important to note, and I always tell my clients this in the very first session, I'm not everybody's cup of tea. You know, a good therapist client fit is important. And if you try one and it's not a good fit, you keep trying, don't give up until yeah. you find the right fit. Um, having a good safety plan. So when I talk about this is not, you know, necessarily suicide um, attempts or even ideation. The problem here is though with increased bouts of self-harm. So if somebody is increasingly um, self-harming and it's becoming more and more frequently, that is associated with a higher risk of suicide. Mm-hmm. So that's where people get kind of caught up in it. So okay. you definitely, when you're assessing for suicide, one of the questions is, do you self-harm? But I think having a good safety plan in place, so you know what to do when you're feeling the urge to self-harm, um, creating goals, trying to look at what are, are there certain triggers for you that, you know, cause this urge or this behavior? Um, if there's someone in your life, because your therapist can't be with you every day, you know, is there somebody in your life, like a trusted family member or friend that can be an additional person of support. And it doesn't have to be somebody that you even tell that you self-harm. It could just be somebody that you say, hey, I'm really struggling emotionally right now. Mm -hmm. I could use some extra support. And that person could even create some distraction or, you know, engage you in something that takes you away from that urge to do that. Mm -hmm. 
And then I would say, um, you know, since it occurs in the context of high emotional reactivity, the first step you have to do if you're going to, you know, try not to do this behavior is to calm the physical body down. So often when people are revved up emotionally, their mind is spinning and they can't think. And a lot of times in therapy, therapists will be like, okay, you need to think about what you're doing first. Well, that's really hard to do that when you're that worked out. Right. Right. Yeah. So that's where I use a lot of dialectical behavior therapy techniques, um, like distress tolerance skills. Um, TIP is one that I use quite often. DBT has all these little acronyms, but TIP is temperature, intense exercise, and progressive muscle relaxation. Can you tell us a little bit more about that with those? Yeah. So temperature is all about um, cold ice water. Um, playing with, you know, the idea of the dive response. So when you, um, if I went out in the middle of the ocean, pushed you into the water, your body would automatically drop your heart rate to protect you from hypothermia. Okay. So I would caution, don't do this if you have a heart condition, (laughs) but it really does work. Um, yeah. So you're, you don't, when you slow down the heart rate, the physical symptoms of the anxiety and the intense emotion are going to calm down, which allows the brain to calm down. Yeah. Um, and it's not sticking your whole head in. It's just this center of your forehead for 30 to 60 seconds. Good tip. That's very cool. Yeah. And then the intense exercise piece, that's literally, I mean, regular exercise, we know helps to manage emotions, but this could be even a couple of minutes of jogging in place as fast as you can doing some jumping jacks, something to rid your body of the physical energy that's associated with that emotion. And then the progressive muscle relaxation, it's similar to meditation. The difference is during it, you're focusing on specific muscle groups of the body and you're tensing and releasing those muscle groups a little at a time. And there's guided ones all over YouTube. If somebody wants to Google progressive muscle relaxation. Yeah. YouTube could could be great. I always say with progressive muscle relaxation, if you are looking online for it, now find something that speaks to you, you know, if you like a soothing female British accent, I'm sure you can find something mm-hmm. like that on YouTube or you know, finding what really seems to soothe you to be able to really sink into the progressive muscle relaxation for sure. So I also would say breathing exercises as well. And then grounding techniques. So if somebody is dissociating or they have a lot of trauma, um, you want to get them to be in their physical body so that they can do something because sometimes people will tell me, well, I cut and I didn't even realize I cut until I looked down and I was bleeding, okay. you know? So sometimes it's bringing you into your body so yeah. that you can then be able to do something using your coping skills. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Wow. And I would say too, um, tape a list of your coping skills to the wall of your room, put it on your phone, put it somewhere where you can see them. So you don't have to think about it. Cause when you're in those intense emotions, you're not going to remember. And, and that's actually key. And that's a great reminder for people to do because it, it's true when you're really in heightened emotion or heightened anxiety, you're not thinking clearly. And so it's, it's very hard then to be like, okay, what should I be doing? So if it's taped right there or somewhere quick access for you to look at, you can mm-hmm. be like, okay, this is what I need to do and then be able to do it. So I think that's actually a really great tip as well. 
Did we cover all the tips? Anything else? Well, I was going to say, um, for those who struggle with, um, talking about how they're feeling, like with either verbalizing or putting it into words, drawing can be helpful. Okay. Um, for those who have a lot of thoughts swirling around in their head, journaling is something that I often recommend just to manage those everyday emotions. I, I think journaling can be helpful for those who like it, like that outlet, you know, kind of getting from what's swirling around in here, kind of outside yourself, you know, to kind of mm-hmm. actually get down, it can be very helpful. So my gosh, Karen, th- thank you. This, you are a wealth of information on this topic. And I think just this episode will be very helpful for those who might be struggling with self-harm or someone who might know somebody who does self-harm and just bring awareness to it. So thank you very much for sharing this information and I very much appreciate you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it as well. Thank you.